This is a Scream Queen production. These violent delights have violent ends. Violent ends. Violent ends. Greetings, Earthlings. Welcome to the season five finale of Violent Ends. I'm your host, Jen Carpenter. As is tradition, we'll be talking about an infamous Michigan massacre to close the season out. Perhaps the most infamous Michigan massacre. Massacre. Here we go. We're off to an amazing start. You guys have been requesting this one for years. So buckle up, buttercups, because you're in for a wild ride. Up north is a subjective term here in Michigan. Where up north begins depends on where you live. So for me here in Lansing, I consider up north to be anything north of Mount Pleasant, while others consider it to be anything north of Clare, while others still don't consider anything up north until it's at the very tippy top of the mitten. On the fingernails, if you will. The small village of Goodhart located on the fingernail of your ring finger, if you're looking at your hand as a map of Michigan, qualifies as up north regardless of where in the lower peninsula you're located. It's way up there. It's about 230 miles due north of Lansing. It sits right on the Lake Michigan shoreline along M119, which is also known as the Tunnel of Trees. And if you're not from Michigan, I'm just talking gibberish right now. (laughs) So stop. Uh, It is located in Emmett Township. No, it's not. It's located in Emmett County. And the largest nearby town is Petoskey, which is still pretty small. It's got a population of under 6,000. Like most of Michigan and the rest of the country, Goodhart began its days as indigenous land, home to an Odawa Indian village. The land was sold, heavy quotes around the sold, to a white man for one dollar in the 1800s, and in 1910 it was incorporated as Goodhart. Around the 1950s, it became home to a private development known as Blisswood. Summer cottages made of stone and log nestled into the dunes and woods along Lake Michigan, parceled and sold off to some of Michigan's most well-to-do residents by builder Chauncey Bliss and his son, whose name was also Chauncey, but who went by Monty. Blisswood Resorts still exist today with a fancy-schmancy lodge and rental cabins, but a lot of that land and a lot of those cabins are privately owned. Chauncey and his wife May lived on one of those cabins overlooking the entire property. Monty and his wife Dorothy lived with their three children— two girls and a boy. I'm not sure if they lived on the property or just near it, but they were definitely in the area. The Bliss family managed the lodge and the rentable cabins, and then they served as caretakers for the entire property. As none of the owners lived there year-round, these were just their summer homes. As Chauncey Sr. started getting up there in age, much of the caretaking fell to his son, Monty, and this was the case in the summer of 1968, the summer that the Bliss family and the entire Goodhart community 
would always remember, and not for good reasons. As the school year ended, families from all over Michigan began making the trek to their summer homes in Blisswood. Monty's youngest child, his son Norman, had just graduated high school and joined the family contracting business with his dad and grandpa. June 22, 1968 was Norman's 18th birthday, and it also happened to be a Saturday. He, of course, celebrated with friends. He had a lot to celebrate. He was done with school. He was 18. It was summertime in northern Michigan. When he wasn't home, though, by 4.30 a.m. on Sunday, his parents started to worry. They called the house he'd been hanging out at and were told that he'd left shortly after midnight. And the place where he was versus where he lived, they were only about seven miles apart, so it definitely shouldn't have taken him hours to get home. So Monty and his wife set out on the route that they believe their son would have taken to get home, and a couple minutes from home, they found Norman's 1965 Honda motorbike wrapped around a tree. They rushed their unconscious son to the nearest hospital, Little Traverse Bay Hospital, where he was pronounced dead from a skull fracture. Word of Norman's death spread quickly around Blisswood, and the summer people stopped by to offer the family their condolences. On June 24th, the day after Norman's death, a man named Dick Robison visited the Bliss home. The Robison family had been summering in Blisswood for over a decade, and Dick's two eldest sons, Richie and Gary, were friends of Norman's. Dick told Mrs. Bliss that he was sorry for her loss, and he gave her $20 to put toward the cost of the funeral, which would be over $100 today. He then stopped by the cabin of the elder Mr. and Mrs. Bliss, Norman's grandparents, to offer them his condolences. He explained to them that he wouldn't be able to make the service the next day as he and his family were leaving to head south for a few weeks. He gave them the key to his cabin in case they needed to access it for any reason while he was gone. And the Bliss family, likely in a fog of grief, paid little attention to these interactions. They took the money. They took the key. They thanked Dick for stopping by. If they'd known that it would be the last time they'd ever see any of the Robisons alive, or that they'd be questioned about these conversations by police for years and years to come, they might have been more astute, asked a few more questions. Monty Bliss moved through the next few weeks in a fog. As he mourned the loss of his only son, he still had to cater to the whims of entitled rich people. That was the job, right? July 22, 1968 was a Monday, exactly one month since Norman's 18th birthday, exactly one month since Monty had last seen his boy alive. As soon as the office opened that morning, Monty received a call from one very unhappy Gladys Moore, a resident of Blisswood. Something was amiss in her very literal neck of the woods. Her cottage was in the woods, and Monty needed to come get to the bottom of it right away. Gladys and her husband, Russell, an elderly couple from Coldwater, which is a small town near the Michigan-Indiana border, had been summering in Blisswood for years. Every year, Gladys hosted what she called a hen party, where she and all of her rich old white lady friends would spend an entire weekend snacking, gossiping, and playing cards. 
Gladys and Russell had arrived days ahead of the hen party to get their cottage ready, and immediately upon arriving, they noticed a foul odor coming from the woods. They reported this to Monty's father, who lived nearby, but the weekend came and the smell was still there, getting worse by the minute. It was so bad that none of Gladys's fellow hens could stand it. They all left early to get away from the stench, and Gladys's entire summer was now ruined. Monty must find the source of the odor. A dead, decaying deer, perhaps? And get rid of it. There was no denying that something was decaying nearby. The stench seemed to be coming from the direction of the Robison's cottage, the moor's nearest neighbor's. Monty remembered that Dick Robison had told them that they were leaving for a while, and he hadn't seen any of them since, so they weren't back yet. Maybe a raccoon had crawled under the cottage and died, and they haven't been there to take care of it, so it's just down there decaying and decomposing. He grabbed a shovel and a box, and he headed over to the Robison's cottage, a beautiful single-story stone and pine log building they'd named Somerset. There were two expensive, newish-looking cars in the driveway, a Ford and a Chrysler, but no other signs of life. All was quiet at Somerset. All of the windows and doors were closed, the curtains were drawn, and the closer Monty got, the worse the smell was. It was definitely coming from inside the house. The doors were locked in a way that could only be done from the inside, which Monty thought was weird. So even though he had a key, he had to use a pry bar to get the front door open. The stench from inside the cottage physically overcame him as tens of thousands of black flies swarmed toward him in response to being disturbed. In the darkness, Monty made out a pair of human legs sticking out from under a blanket on the living room floor, a beige high heel on one foot. He backed away from the cottage in horror and told his assistant to phone the police. The call came into the Emmett County Sheriff's Department just after 3 p.m. on July 22, 1968. As Monty awaited the arrival of the cavalry, he found himself wondering, what the fuck happened here? And that's a question that today, over 55 years later, still has not been answered. Before we continue, I do need to take a moment to thank today's sponsor. Violent Ends is sponsored by Care Of. If you've never heard me talk about Care Of before, you must be new here. (laughs) Care Of is a subscription service that ships high-quality, personalized vitamins, supplements, and powders conveniently to your door every month. It's a super easy program to start. All you do is take a short, easy online quiz about your lifestyle and health goals, and then Care Of will give you doctor-backed recommendations. It's that easy. Starting a new routine can be hard, but Care Of makes it super simple with individualized daily vitamin packs. Just grab your pack on the way out the door in the morning. Listen, if I... I can remember this as part of my routine. Anybody can. 
And then the thing is, once you've adopted like one new healthy habit, it kind of inspires you to stay on track and keep going. At least that's that's what I have experienced. Whether you need a good keratin boost to help support strong hair and nails, or even just a good quality multivitamin for your overall health, Care Of has you covered. For 50% off your first Care Of order, go to TakeCareOf.com and enter promo code Violent ends 50. Again, that's takecareof.com, promo code violent ends 50 for 50% off your first order. And be sure to tell them I sent you. The Rabisons were the picture of an all American family in the 1960s attractive, tidy, modestly wealthy. Richard Robison, who went by Dick and Shirley, maiden name Fulton, were both born in Detroit, him in 1925, her in 1927. They met in college, fell in love, and they were married on September 27, 1947, when they were 22 and 20, respectively. Their first child, Richard Jr., Richie, was born the following year. Three years after Richie came Gary in 1951, then Randy four years later in 1955, followed by the family's only girl, Susie, in 1960. The Rabisons were devout Lutherans, and Dick was known to be a pretty strict dad. Shirley was beautiful and elegant. The children were well-behaved. Dick owned a successful advertising agency in Southfield, R.C. Robinson and Associates, and he published a magazine about arts and culture in Detroit called Impresario. The family lived in an upscale subdivision in Lathrop Village, a suburb of Detroit, where they counted hockey legend Gordie Howe among their neighbors. In 1956, they bought land up north in Goodhart's Blisswood Development, and Chauncey Bliss and his son Monty built them their very own summer home. Traditionally, the Robisons spent three weeks every summer in Goodhart, but the summer of 1968 would be different. They planned to spend the entire summer there. Dick's business was doing well, he was making good money, the kids were getting older, Richie was 19 and had just finished his freshman year at Eastern Michigan University, Gary was 16 and about to start his senior year at Southfield Lathrop Senior High, Randy was 12, and little brown-haired, blue-eyed Susie, her father's favorite, was 7. Dick and Shirley, married for 20 years at this point, were 42 and 40. Although, in the one family photo that you'll find if you Google pictures of them, they look so much older than that. Like, the 50s and 60s were hard on people our age, y'all. Like shockingly older than 42 and 40 years old, but I digress. As soon as the kids were done with school, the family made the 275-mile trek from Lathrop Village to Goodhart, and they arrived on June 16th at Somerset in two cars. For the first week they were there, neighbors saw them out and about, kids playing, biking, hiking, campfires. Their front door was 100 feet from Lake Michigan, so there was lots of beach time. Shirley's mother called on the 23rd, and she spoke with her daughter, who told them that they were all having a fabulous time. And then later that day, the family found out about the tragic death of Monty Bliss's son, Norman. 
The Robison children didn't even have time to properly mourn their friend as they were preparing to leave the state a couple days later. A vacation from a vacation, if you will. They were flying to Kentucky and Florida to look at property with a business associate of Dick's, a horse farm in Kentucky and a condominium in Florida. Dick shared this news with Chauncey Bliss on June 24th when he stopped by to offer his condolences on the loss of Norman. He told them they'd be gone a few weeks. The next day, on June 25th, tree trimmers were doing work at the Robison's Somerset property. The cottage was abuzz with activity, the family getting ready for their trip, the kids played outside while Shirley prepared everyone for travel, and Dick made a bunch of last-minute business calls. Around 4 o'clock that day, the tree trimmers finished up their work, and Dick thanked them and handed them a check for $170. They told him they would be back the next day to do cleanup. Around 9 o'clock that night... Neighbors heard shouting and gunfire from the Robison property, but assumed they were just shooting at the pesky seagulls on the beach. Who shoots seagulls? Like, is that a thing? It just reminds me of that. (laughs) Seriously, is that a thing? I know they can be annoying and aggressive, but you don't just shoot them, right? It reminds me of that episode of Friends, R.I.P. Chandler, where um, Phoebe's dating that cop. Michael Rapaport plays him, right? And they're in bed, and she's in love with him, and he's so great, and there's a bird chirping outside the window, and he just pulls out his gun and shoots it. Like, who does that? Anyway, the following day, June 26th, the tree-trimming crew returned, and they found the house quiet. The cars were still there, but the windows and doors were closed, the curtains drawn, and there was no sign of the Robisons. This didn't strike them as unusual, though, because the Robisons had told them that they were getting ready to go out of town. For the next month, Somerset sat frozen in time, hiding a terrible secret. The cars in the driveway collecting pollen, the windows and doors remaining closed, Bullet holes in one of the windows, clearly visible. The work of neighborhood kids with pellet guns, no doubt. And that wretched scent of decay getting worse and worse until it finally became unbearable. When Emmett County Undersheriff, 34-year-old Clifford Fosmore, arrived on the scene of what would become one of Michigan's most notorious massacres, he was already in way over his head. He'd only been on the job a month. As luck would have it, his boss, Sheriff Richard Zink, was on his first vacation in nearly a decade. He had taken the family to Yellowstone. As Fosmore made his way out to Blisswood after getting the call about bodies in the Somerset cabin, which he had about a half-hour drive from the station to Goodhart, Word of a murder in Goodhart spread over the police radio, and soon there was a whole convoy of deputies, prosecutors, police officers from other jurisdictions, reporters, all headed to the Somerset Cottage at Goodhart, which this was not a good thing because that was just more hands, feet, and DNA contaminating the crime scene before CSI could get there from Lansing. The stench coming from the Robison Cottage was so overpowering, officers had to wear gas masks. The sight of tens of thousands of flies swarming about like something out of a horror movie. But what they found beyond that was even worse. 
40-year-old Shirley was face down on the living room floor covered by a red camping blanket. Only her bare legs were visible. One beige high heel was still on her foot while the other had been tossed onto a chair. Her lime green cocktail dress was pulled up over her waist, and her underwear and girdle, which had been cut with a jagged instrument, were around one ankle. She had been shot in the head. In the hallway, things got much worse. Lying dead in a pile were Dick Robison and his two youngest children. 42-year-old Dick was face down, dead from bullet holes to his chest and head. 12-year-old Randy was lying on top of him. He'd also been shot in the head. And 7-year-old Susie, her hair in pigtails, was wedged between Randy's body and the wall. She'd been shot, but she'd also been bludgeoned multiple times with a claw hammer. Further into the cottage, authorities found the bodies of the two eldest Robison children. It was surmised that they'd been running to the closet for a shotgun, but they never made it. Richie was crumbled in a heap in the doorway, still holding the playing cards in his hand from the game of double solitaire he and Gary had been playing when the shooting started. Gary was inside the bedroom near the bed, flat on his back with his arms stretched above his head as if he were reaching for something. All six members of the prominent Robison family of Lathrop Village were dead, and had been for nearly a month. This in a village, a town, a county, where murders were few and far between, let alone an entire massacre. Aside from the bodies and the flies, and a stench so powerful that those on scene burned the clothes they were wearing afterwards, police found bullet holes in the floors, the doors, the furniture, the windows, four from a 25 caliber handgun and 11 from a 22 caliber rifle. The guns were gone, but the claw hammer that had been used to bludgeon little Susie after she was shot was on the floor in the center room. There was a single bloody shoe print, drag marks indicating that the bodies had been moved and staged. Shirley's body was too badly decomposed to determine if she'd been raped, but it certainly appeared that way. The furnace was turned on in the middle of summer, which sped up the decomposition of the bodies over the course of the month that they lay waiting for someone to find them. On the front door, near the bullet holes that Chauncey Bliss had noticed but chalked up to children and pellet guns, was a hastily scribbled note that read, We'll be back 710, Robison. Had anyone thought to contact authorities when they heard gunshots coming from the property, or had anyone stopped to read the note saying that the family would be back July 10th and then realized they were actually missing, Perhaps the bodies would not have been so decomposed that they were unable to provide much useful evidence by the time they were found. And perhaps the sheriff would have been on duty instead of on vacation and could have stopped over a dozen law enforcement officials from contaminating the scene before the crime lab arrived. But as it was, and due to the circumstances, there just wasn't much evidence beyond the circumstantial kind. Because Emmett County didn't have their own morgue, the bodies were taken to Little Travers Hospital, where autopsies were usually performed. But 
Hospital officials refused to allow them to enter with these bodies. They said they were far too decayed and decomposed to be brought into a hospital. It was highly unsanitary. So officials took the bodies to the Emmett County Fairgrounds and made a makeshift morgue in an old chicken coop. It was determined that all six members of the Robison family had died from gunshot wounds to the head, Although Susie and Shirley had been additionally brutalized, Susie was bludgeoned with that claw hammer that they found at the scene, and Shirley was most likely raped. Based on the autopsies and the crime scene, detectives came up with a theory. On the evening of June 25th, the Robinsons were relaxing in the living room, Dick in his favorite armchair talking with Randy, who was standing beside him, Shirley on the sofa, Susie on the floor playing with toys, and Richie and Gary seated at the card table in the corner playing double solitaire. Unbeknownst to them, someone was watching them from the woods and fired three shots from an Armalite AR-7 22 caliber semi-automatic rifle through the cabin's front door, hitting Dick twice and possibly one of the boys playing cards also. The gunman or gunmen then stormed the house with a 25 caliber Beretta and continued firing. First Shirley, then Susie and Randy, then they chased the older boys down as they tried desperately to get to the only gun in the cabin, a rifle in the back bedroom closet. Once everyone at Somerset was down, the gunmen or gunmen went through the house once more and shot each member of the family methodically in the head just for good measure. Then they used a claw hammer to hit Susie in the head multiple times and either raped or made it look like they had raped Shirley. Then they fled and had almost a month's head start on authorities. The prevailing theories on a culprit were that it was either a completely random act perpetrated by a madman or an enemy of Dick's. But authorities said very early on in the investigation, Dick Robison had no enemies. He was an upstanding citizen who led a picture-perfect life. In the 1960s, all it took to be an upstanding citizen was alabaster skin, a hefty bank account, a pretty wife, and well-behaved children. Your actual character and behavior behind closed doors didn't matter at all. And we know that, right? And Dick's actual character was not good. It was soon discovered that he had quite a few enemies, including those closest to him. Dick Robison was a complicated man. He liked to paint watercolors. He supported the opera. He published an arts and culture magazine with a distribution of 50,000-plus readers. He didn't drink or smoke. He didn't like guns. He kept things neat and tidy and was seen as someone who lived his life on the straight and narrow. Perhaps the only thing Dick loved more than art was money and the power that came from having money. And once authorities started asking, those who actually knew Dick described him as, well, a dick. Uh, he was a tyrant, borderline schizophrenic, diagnosed by people who know nothing about mental health, probably. Paranoid, secretive. One former employee told authorities how he had resigned from Dick's company due to mistreatment, 
only to have Dick beg for him to return and offer him a raise. He was reluctant, but money's money, so he took the job, just for Dick to fire him a week later, saying, Nobody quits Dick Robison. Nobody. (laughs) I would say that's a dick move, but like, that just, it's not, the jokes write themselves and then they're not funny. Even the pastor at the church that the Robison family attended religiously told detectives, Dick was a strict parent, a brilliant and determined individual, but he had a split personality. He was kind of a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde type. So, yeah, weird shit going on there. Dick had been traveling for business quite a bit during the spring and summer of 1968, working on some secret project that sounded more like a conspiracy theory than an actual thing. He was gone so much that he left operations of his advertising agency and magazine in the hands of his right-hand man, Joseph Scalero III. Joe Scalero was Dick's first employee at R.C. Robinson & Associates, the OG associate, if you will, hired in 1965. At 27 years old, the six-foot-tall, 200-pound, sharply-dressed man with black hair and black eyes certainly made an impression. 13 years Dick's junior, Joe was a retired sharpshooter with the U.S. Army, studied business and marketing at Harvard, was the son of a prominent ad executive and publisher in Detroit, and had a pretty wife, a young son, and another on the way. To Dick, who very much valued a wholesome image, Joe checked all the right boxes, and Dick came to trust him implicitly. He was the only employee that had access to the firm's bank accounts, and it might have been those very bank accounts that led to the fall of the House of Robison. Before we continue, I do need to take a moment to thank today's other sponsor. The holidays are right around the corner, and HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit, can help take the stress out of dinner by delivering everything you need to cook a hearty dinner right to your door. Everything is fresh and arrives pre-portioned so that you can get right to cooking without all of the prep work. And with over 45 weekly recipes to choose from, your menu will never get stale. I live in Michigan, which becomes a winter wonderland this time of year. So any time that I can spend in my warm, cozy house instead of driving to and from the grocery store and spending hours shopping for ingredients that they're usually out of anyway, sign me up. And now's a great time for you to sign up as well, especially if you love breakfast as much as I do. Go to HelloFresh.com slash free to get free breakfast for life. One breakfast item per box while subscription is active. That's free breakfast for life at HelloFresh.com slash free with code free. On June 25th, the day of the Good Heart Massacre, One of the business calls the tree-trimming crew heard Dick make was to Joe, back at the office. A conversation with his account manager at the National Bank of Detroit led Dick to the realization that the math wasn't mathing and there was over $60,000 missing from the company bank account, the equivalent of over half a million dollars in today's money. 
Dick, from his summer house, wanted to confront Joe, who was now 30 years old and the father to two young boys, about the missing money, but Joe just kept dodging him. On the morning of the 25th, Dick finally caught up with his protege. Both those at Somerset and those at the office back in Southfield heard the argument, the accusations, the excuses. After the two men hung up the phone, Joe Scalero left work early for the day. Hours later, Dick Robison and his entire family were dead. Upon questioning Joe, authorities found that he couldn't keep his story straight, and the one he settled on was full of holes. He told police that when he left the office on the 25th, he went to a plumber's conference at Cobo Hall. A, why, you're not a plumber, Joe. What are you doing at a plumber's conference? Two, nobody that was at the conference could confirm that Joe was there. Nobody recognized the picture of him that police showed around, and he's a pretty recognizable guy. He told police that after the plumber's conference, he went and grabbed a drink at a hotel bar, and then he went by the Robison family home in Lathrop Village to check the basement for flooding as it had been raining heavily. He said that he did, in fact, find flooding in the basement, and he spent about an hour cleaning it up before returning home around 10, 11 o'clock that night. What a convenient story to explain why you were in the Robison family home the day that they died. Excuse me, sir. So him getting home 10, 11 that night, this is the only part of the day that he has an alibi for. His wife confirmed that he did return home sometime between 10 and 11 p.m. on the night of the 25th. So for about 12 hours that day, from the time he left the office early to the time he returned home, Joe Scalaro, the man who'd just been caught embezzling hundreds of thousands of dollars in today's money, had no alibi. Now, here's where the timeline gets a little shifty. The drive from Goodhart to Birmingham, where Joe Sclero lived, is about four hours. The Robison neighbors claim to hear gunshots and shouting around nine o'clock at night. Joe Sclero was back home four hours away by 11 o'clock at night, which is only two hours later. So that does not work. But who's to say that those neighbors were even correct? If they weren't worried enough about what they heard to call police, how and why would they remember the exact day and time that they heard it a month later once they found out the Robisons were dead? And an expensively accurate watch that one of the Robison boys was wearing stopped at 6.45 p.m. Does a watch stop when you get shot? Maybe like from the impact of him hitting the ground? I'm not sure. But if if the family was killed, if this is an indication of what time the shootings took place and the family was killed at 645, then that would be plenty of time for Joe to get back home by 11 p.m. Now, lack of an alibi, a questionable timeline, a motive, and conflicting statements does not a six-time murderer make. But how about three, not one, not two, three failed polygraph tests, and a mountain of circumstantial evidence. Not to mention that those first shots fired from outside the home directly into Dick Robison's heart definitely suggest sharpshooter vibes. So let's talk about the evidence. Remember the bloody footprint that authorities found? An exact match to a pair of shoe covers Joe Scalaro owned. 
Shoe covers, if you're not familiar, are basically less bulky rubber boots. Thin rubber shells that one can put over their shoes to protect them during inclement weather. Lots of businessmen wore them, including Joe Scalaro. And remember, it was raining heavily that day in Detroit. Not in Goodhart, but in Detroit. A twist. The shoe covers in Joe's home that matched the bloody footprint were brand new. Never worn. Another twist. Joe was known to buy two of everything. Don't ask me why. It was just a thing he did. New pair of slacks. Gotta buy two. New tie. Gotta buy two. New shoe covers. Gotta buy two sets and throw one away after wearing them to murder six people. Know what else Joe bought two of? Guns. Guns. Specifically, the exact type of guns and bullets used to kill the Robison family. Two 25 caliber Beretta handguns, one he kept for himself, one he claimed he gave to Dick Robison. Two 22 caliber Armalite AR7 semi automatic rifles, one he said he gave to a friend, and one he supposedly gave to a cousin. And two boxes of very rare, hard to find in the U.S. bullets by a European brand called Sacco. Joe bought all of this, the handguns, the rifles, and the bullets at a gun shop in Flint just months before the murders. Out of those four guns, only one, one of the rifles that Joe gave to a family member was recovered. The other three, gone with the wind. Furthermore, authorities scoured the Oakland County gun range Joe frequented and found bullets fired from the AR-7 that was used in the Robison murders. Not the same type of gun, the actual gun. Like, the term smoking gun seems a little redundant here, but come on. Also, there was the fact that After Joe ran Dick's business into the ground by robbing it blind, leaving it basically worthless, and after Dick was suddenly randomly killed by an unknown assailant along with his entire family so that there was no one to run or inherit the business, Joe bought the business from the Robison estate for pennies on the dollar. In 1970, the Michigan State Police detectives assigned to the case presented it to the Emmett County prosecuting attorney, suggesting six charges of first-degree murder be filed against Joseph Scalero III. But the prosecutor declined to press charges, stating that there wasn't enough evidence. What? It was rumored at the time that the real reason was because Emmett County didn't have the money or the resources to prosecute the case, and that the prosecutor himself wasn't experienced enough to try it. That same year, Somerset, the summer home the Robison family once loved so much, was razed to the ground. In 1973, when it became clear that Emmett County was never going to charge Joe Scalero with murder, Oakland County, no stranger to trying high-profile cases, decided to step in. They couldn't charge Joe with murder, but they could charge him with conspiracy to commit murder, which was at least something, because if Joe did the murder, he had to have planned the murder, and he would have done that in Oakland County, where he lived and worked. So, yeah. 
But before they could charge him, someone who worked at the prosecutor's office who knew Joe Scalero's mother, Kitty, warned her that the DA's office was planning to charge her son. She, in turn, told Joe. So on March 8, 1973, 34-year-old Joe Scalero went to the office where his mother worked as his secretary, told her to go shopping, and once she left, he closed himself inside his office, the office that once belonged to Dick Robison. He wrote a note warning his mother not to enter the office and taped it to the front of the door. Then he closed the door, typed out a long, bizarre suicide note that said, among other things, I am a liar, a cheat, a phony, but I am not a killer. I am scared and sick. Then he added a handwritten P.S. that said, I did not kill the Robisons. Then he sat down at his desk and shot himself in the head with a twenty-five caliber Beretta, the same type of gun, but not the same actual gun, that was used in the Robison murders. Joe Scalero left behind a wife and two young sons. He was buried at Ottawa Park Cemetery in Clarkston. The Robisons were buried the same way they died, together, at Acacia Park Cemetery in Beverly Hills, Michigan. A new cottage has been built on the lot once owned by the Robisons, but the site where the actual cabin stood is now a grove of pine trees. While by no means unsolved, the Robison family murder case is still technically open. A storage room at the Emmett County Sheriff's Office is filled with evidence and files, and there is still, today, a detective assigned to the case. In 2003, evidence was re-examined in hopes that advancements in DNA technology might lead to that final bit of evidence that authorities feel like they need to close the books on this case for good. But all of that evidence was too degraded to pull DNA from. And that, friends, is the not unsolved but still unsettled case of the Goodhart Family Massacre. My main sources for today's episode were the book When Evil Came to Good Heart by Marty Link and episode 218 of Already Gone, hosted by my good friend Nina Instead. And that's a wrap on season five. I feel like this season, more than any other, completely, completely went off the rails. We made it, what, a single episode into the season before the shooting at Michigan State, which then kind of caused me to completely shift focus for a while. And then these past couple months have just really, really been a struggle for me. I've been dealing with some pretty scary health stuff, COVID brain fog, COVID heart stuff, and I just, I haven't been myself. I'm still not myself. So this little break I've got coming is so needed. You guys take care as well. I hope you all have a really good holiday season, a happy new year, and I'll see you in 2024. And just remember, just because you're different, doesn't mean you're not beautiful. So get out there and shine, you magnificent what-the-fucks. <laughs>